Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. And so today, to kind of keep up with our theme over the last couple of episodes of uh, diving deeper into some previous topics from uh, earlier in the season, uh, we have Chris from Meme Analysis, uh, who can tell us a little bit about himself. Uh, We usually let our guests introduce themselves a little more because we're pretty awful at doing it. Uh, (laughs) But we've talked about memes, or at least the history of memes, but it, it might as well delve a little deeper um, and talk a little bit about some of the union and, and Freudian concepts associated. So, welcome. Hello, everybody. Uh, I, I run the channel Meme Analysis, where I take uh, a little bit of a different view from the orthodox reading of memes. I like to take these much older thinkers, uh, Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud, and Wilhelm Reich, and even some occultists, like Aleister Crowley, and see how their work applies to this concept of mimetics, which really is still in its infancy. So I'm very happy to discuss that and the internet and all of how it affects sexuality. I'm very excited to have you on. Um, I think my first video I watched of yours on meme analysis was the NoFap video. And as Daniel said in our previous episode where we talked about memes, I actually used a lot of your uh, videos to kind of inform that alternate view. Would you kind of explain the difference between the more traditional view of memes or like the more scientific approach versus the more philosophical occult aspects of memes that you focus on on your channel? Sure. So the kind of orthodox view of memes has its origin with uh, Richard Dawkins and his view is very distinctly biological, um, very distinctly scientific, whereas it, it kind of lacks a psychological and a philosophical depth. You know, it's, it's analyzing something that is just so intrinsically psychic. It's a psychic phenomena, but it refuses to kind of take the next step. Um, it recognizes the way that behaviors reproduce themselves. It's a description of reproducing um, behaviors, traits, and so on. But it really doesn't grasp why that happens. Why are there patterns? Why are some memes more effective than others? And even in books like The Meme Machine, which I believe is by uh, Blackmore, these big questions fail to be answered. And... So we need to go with um, the people who described mimetics before them, which just tends to be, you know, older psychologists uh, and sometimes even occultists and uh, literary authors. Uh, William S. Burroughs, his concept of the word virus or the language or image virus is far more uh, effective and descriptive than the meme. He provides a lot more information on how to use them as well. It's a far more practical theory. Um, Jung's archetypes and symbols have a lot in common. In fact, that was one of the early criticisms of the meme as Dawkins defined it. It was too similar to an archetype. Um, But again, it lacks the understanding that Jung had of why archetypes exist and what what their purpose is. So I find 
analyzing memes through these older perspectives produces far more interesting results than what most um, most people interested in mimetic research are doing right now. I get the impression that like Dawkins is that that biological transmission of social information is very different and doesn't take into consideration kind of the way memes have evolved in a modern sense and then how they're used. And in that case, it becomes more kind of what, what you're getting into and that that psychological, it's, it's definitely entrenched in how we think about the world, especially now. I was lamenting with Thomas that I am, um, much older now that I'm reminded of <laughs> modern meme uh, um, analysts that, you know, going, going through, you know, the memes of my high school and stuff like that way back in like the late nineties uh, and just how much that's changed in, in terms. And, but it's, it's very much a, you described it, you know, very well, like a psychic a psychological process and, and how we engage with them. I think you probably had one of the most effective memes, though. Do you remember the S? We, we talked about that in our last mm -hmm. video, the Stussy S and, and a bit mm -hmm. of the history and, and people trying to kind of like understand. We talked about that. We talked about um, uh, Kilroy was here, um, you know, kind of these, these real uh, old school. Yeah, I, to talk like, I had a, a friend of mine got really into like looking at like Crowley and some of the occult symbols, including, you know, the peace sign and thumbs up being very masculine or feminine and masculine symbols res respectively. Um, and then kind of delving into, I didn't, didn't realize it at the time, but it was very entrenched in a lot of these conversations that um, your channel and, and that other people who are kind of delving into this uh, are having now. And I was like, oh, I, I know about that because I had this, you know, offhand conversation with, with a friend of mine, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm super fascinated by, Thomas introduced me to the concept of, of meme magic, and I'm very fascinated by meme wizards now. Mm. Uh, no, that's, I was about to say, that's what drew me to your channel's like meme magic. Excuse me? I need to know everything about this now. And so that's, I pulled from your videos and a little bit from Angie Speaks uh, when she discusses, um, oh, what is his name? Uh, it more. Me. Yeah, more, Alan Moore. Absolutely. So those primary analysis texts for uh, that portion of my education, I guess, on meme magic. Speaking of meme magic, I suppose that's a, a good way to kind of get into like what, what is lacking in Dawkins. It's the fact that number one, you can produce memes. You can actually create a meme and you can make, you can tr make it transmit information. You can transmit information or behaviors that you want. Um, and that's why some, a question I always like to consider is like, what did the Stussy S do? What, what, like it affected us all in some way. It's still here. It still spreads. Why? It's not an empty signifier. I would guarantee there's some significance. Someone said in, in doing my research on that bit, someone had mentioned that it may represent something kind of like a helix, like, like a double helix or something like that. Like the sort of building block of, it's also really easy to reproduce. It's really easy to, to make. So that kind of added to its ability to spread and transmit. And it, yeah, it's just, 
and that's definitely something like like the way Dawkins is thinking about it is very much and that this kind of gets us into I think one of the things that, that we wanted to talk about is you know Dawkins is taking a very I would argue you know if, if I wanted to research memes in modern psychology they're not going to take it as well it's going to be hard to find a journal to publish that in it's going to be hard mm-hmm. to approach it without trying and I mean I, I do fan studies and that's much of the same thing. You go into a psych journal, they're like, eh, this is a little too communications, fan studies And you go to the fan studies journals, they're like, ah, this is a little too psychological. It'd be kind of the same thing that, that you know, if, if I were just looking at how we maybe transmit knowledge, kind of how Dawkins is saying, I teach someone how to build a fire. That's the transmission of social information. I'm teaching someone how to do something but I'm not really creating that. And so taking it to that further step, taking it to that kind of archetypical, kind of bringing in some of that old school Jung and Freud, some stuff that's maybe not as easy to pin down using the objective measures that they maybe would prefer, but getting into that more hypothetical, that more esoteric, maybe for lack of a better word, um, uh, or eclectic, uh, something different than than what they're expecting, especially if I wanted to cite some Jung and Freud. It's probably <laughs> going to get me some pushback. And the peer review would have a time with that. Yeah, and it just, it's, it's sort of like what, <laughs> there's benefit. But. I suppose it's, uh, it's why I enjoy doing YouTube and treating it more as an art and as a um, a show, because you know, I think it's it's fairly clear if you look at film um, and you just look at fiction in general, you see Freud and Jung have massive effects on entertainment, on literature, while a lot of modern psychology doesn't and can't because it's not mimetic, it's not effective or potent, and it doesn't get at the integral problems nearly as well as those, you know, old thinkers, but the, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Um, I can make videos about something as ridiculous as internet jokes, but through the use of these older thinkers, I can reach very, very poignant, potent ideas that make people stay. Um, Whereas I see a lot of a lot of modern psychology fails to get at the problems that people really are having. They they create problems. They can create diagnoses and names for things that people will relate to, um, which I know is something you wanted to talk about, um, the formulation of identities and why people want identity. I think, you know, a lot of modern psychology, especially therapy, is in the business of producing identities rather than uh, unraveling trauma. Oh yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Cause I dabble in the trauma research a little bit and how trauma affects particularly educational situations. And it's very, um, identifiable. So like I have trauma, I have experienced trauma and you kind of see that play out in the public, uh, discourse a lot where people are now like wearing their traumas in their like Twitter bios um and then like how to remediate that issue but doesn't really go into why something is traumatic necessarily just what is traumatic it's a big controversy in clinical psychology now is is that there was this original 
shift to try to better label because there did seem to be some benefit in letting someone know that they're not alone. They're part of this larger group and there are people in that group that can get better. But there's this start, sort of move away from that within some circles now saying, well, yes, but sometimes if you throw that label onto that person or that person who doesn't quite understand it adopts that label, they may develop worse symptoms or, or be much harder to treat because they're, they're very tied up in that particular identity as someone who has that psychological disorder rather than trying to, again, understand some of the underlying causes or trying to delve through it and everything else that's compounded into that. I think even one of the biggest questions is quite simply, you know, what is trauma? Um, literally, not, not just psychically, but what, what is trauma? And I think it's something that Wilhelm Reich, one of Freud's students, gets at in such a fascinating way. You know, Freud talks a lot about libido, the, the literal energy of sexuality and thanatos, the, the destructive energy, and that these drives are what animate us. And Reich views trauma as essentially blockages, um, like kinks in a hose. They are bits um, of tough muscle, parts of our body that are literally restricted. We are no longer fully animate our drives are no longer able to exercise themselves because trauma gets literally embedded in our bodies. Um, that's something identity can't get at, you know, it's, that's something, you know, sp speech therapy is clearly what Freud thought was the end, the be all end all, but Reich thought that there was a lot of room for actual physicality, the importance mm -hmm. of the, the physical in regards to trauma. And I think that that's something that's, you know, uh, a lot of people say, oh, just exercise if you're depressed, which is partially, you know, par yes, we have to exercise, but speech and exercise together. Mm -hmm. It's a way to get the drives moving, right? There's a minor, um, well, probably not minor. That's probably not fair to say. Um, but there's a movement within psychology right now, particularly with like cognition and memory that looks at the embodied aspects of psychology and how our we do not just exist as like homunculi in our heads that we're also like our fingers and our toes and that we can also exist in our consciousness and is present in the tools that we use around us like the computer and the cell phone and the pen and pen and paper for example so that kind of falls in line with the Reich idea that trauma is like an embodied experience and when you look at like symptoms of trauma like when we identify it there's a lot of physicality symptoms as well. Like, yes, you get your ruminations and your flashbacks and things like that, but also it can come down to like light sensitivity or migraines or physical like uh, pain and joint pain and stuff like that. And I guess the real, the real big idea is that all archetypes and all memes are to some extent a product of differentiated traumatized libido. What begins as essentially amorphous, um, you know, undifferentiated libido is directed by experience that teaches us, you know, we should do this again. We shouldn't do this again. This is helpful. This is harmful. And we form these very complex, you know, 
memes around these distinctions of drive. Mm-hmm. That reminds me when we were talking about memes, Daniel enlightened me to the two oldest memes, which are uh, penis graffiti and memento mori, which are probably the two biggest traumas we experience in life. <laughs> Exactly. Deeply Freudian, right? The penis and whether or not we have it or not Mm -hmm. is is the essential question. So what better way to to show that we got it than to to graffiti it? Mm -hmm. The the more I kind of delve into, and especially doing this podcast has really, I think, allowed us to do is to kind of step away as much and try to make or have much more kind of personable down to earth discussions, which is kind of that distinctiveness between what I would say is kind of a modern psych article versus something that we would label and is typically frowned upon by, by the broader psych community as a sort of like pop psych stuff. And it's, it's something that I've, I've learned working with a couple of colleagues of mine in, in writing some stuff about fandom is that I much more enjoy writing more down to earth let me try to explain this to you in a non, and, and if there's going to be some complex stuff, like I'll try to water it down so that you understand it, but being able to kind of touch on those, those topics or those more relatable topics. And it's kind of where I see, you know, some of those uses, because we, we still do talk about Freud sometimes. He does come up, but it's pretty like, ta- taboo. <laughs> yeah, it's like in an intro to psychology class, like there's the Freud lecture that everybody has. And, and, and the same with Yoon, um, but I, I found like I got to teach a, a cinema class on like looking at psychology through cinema. And there was a lot of Yoon at the beginning because we had to talk about archetypes and we had to talk about this stuff because like, like you said, it's, it's much more relatable in those, um, those formats, much like you doing YouTube. It's, it's much easier, you know, if you were to put those ideas as well-researched and well-cited as, as, as a lot of the stuff you delve into is if you were to put that in an article and try to get it published in current psychology, they're going to be like, well, this doesn't this quite. Is, this is out of the purview of the aim and scope of this journal. I think this is some of the problem. One of the, one of the big things that I, I come across, you know, obviously, because I talk about Freud a lot, you know, people, they constantly, constantly, the line is Freud has been discredited. And, you know, you just ask, well, by who, what ideas, blah, blah, blah. But that's not even important. The important thing is um, Bernays, Edward mm-hmm. Bernays, the, the founder of public relations. Psychoanalysis is used. It's just used against you, you know? Yep. Um, Scientology. Scientology is built directly upon Freud. And it works really, really, really well at being a cult because it's utilizing <laughs> Freud. It's like, you know, yes, for sure, you're right. You know, Freud has been discredited and therapy doesn't need it anymore. But all these people are going to be using it against you because it's an accurate depiction of the psyche. One of the other things I think that is greatly misunderstood is the concept of meta-psychology, which is what psychoanalysis engages in. It's a narrative of the psyche rather than a truly biological analysis of the, of the brain or of the body. It's, it's a, a, a narrative tool for grappling with trauma. Um, 
Scientology is essentially the same thing. It's a meta psychology, but you know, with a lot more barbs built in. But both have very similar aims, where they they grapple with trauma, but they utilize different narrative structures to do so.、Um, so I think it's it's so funny that we we disregard Freud, but he's ever present. It was really after a history of psychology and then some other stuff as I started teaching and kind of reading more to add to to lectures is that I remember taking classes and it being very either we're not going to talk about Freud or you get the little quick spiel and in the clinical like this is what Freud was.、But、the more I taught intro clinic, you know, intro psych clinical, the more I would be like, yeah, I mean, we don't talk about Freud, but like the whole concept of talking to your patients, like Freud helped to popularize that the couch.、Mm-hmm. Freud helped to popularize putting people in a comfortable situation to make them spill the beans. And hey, we see that used effectively in a number of other settings, including against you. And in, in terms of, let's say, police interrogation, has started moving people to comfortable hotel rooms, as opposed to bringing them into that, you know, standard interrogation chamber. And and you know, we kind of see these similar things. Like there are things that we know that stuff that Freud did still holds up. Uh, so, for example, things like defense mechanisms, Freud and, and Anna Freud's work、um, on on defense mechanisms holds up because I mean, anyone who denies it is engaging in denial, and <laughs> we see those aspects of how we you know kind of engage in the world around us and how we kind of put up these shields to help buffer the stresses and and the other issues, and and there's there's I mean there are other things like、mm-hmm. I think、like、the one. The- The idea of becoming like you're not born who you be who you are you become who you are through growing up is really important I think and is foundational for developmental psych. The unconscious, you know, the most the most significant psychological idea, but the one that literally can't be named or understood, because you know to do th- my my basic thought though is that AI. Has grasped the unconscious perfectly already,、um, you know, like auto auto suggestion,、mm-hmm. auto suggestion. If we're if you know if we use kind of a Lacanian unconscious, it's already it's already there. You know, your likely textual responses, your your language that is utilized, that is the unconscious itself to Lacan,、um, and what my channel is kind of showing. Every meme that makes you laugh, every meme that you save, I'm getting a look at your unconscious mind.、Um, the internet is the the most direct evidence of the unconscious. I mean, you go to Pornhub and you see the the top result is incest, and that was the that was really the point of contention for so for decades. People were like, "This is ridiculous. This is obscene. This is some. This is just Freud. Freud is the only one who likes incest. It's his own his own problem." But now it's it's literally out in the open that this is the primary mode of fetishism for so many people. And then you even get people who double down; they deny the unconscious and they conspire. They make a conspiracy that it's being forced, it's pushed, that nobody likes it. It's just forced on people. It's brilliant. So I, I can confirm. I did pull the top 100 heterosexual porn videos, and there was a lot of incest. Ugh, I mean, lots of it. I was like, "Oh, this is worse than I thought it was." Okay, <laughs> and and it's amazing too that like if if we really want to get Freudian with this conversation, you can track it to location, and the most 
repressed places have some of the most vulgar intense. searches. Intense. Intense is a good word. Um, that that yeah, it's very much so you know tied to. We might call it something else. And there are some people delving into the research. I think some of, some people are trying to kind of you know find that way around getting into talking about these concepts without maybe naming Freud, um, just because they know. At least I guess I mean that in itself has become kind of taboo. Um, yeah. That that yeah, and it's 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 fascinating. It's it's fascinating how much we can pull from that history and pull from that. I mean, even going beyond Freud. Um, we get into like the neo-Freudians, so people like Erickson. So like I, I may not buy as much into Freud's psychosexual stages of development, um, but he was trying to pin it down. I mean, we do know when we talk about Freud being debunked, like if you want to talk about that, it's not really as, as much debunked as like, well, the stages are a lot more fluid than Freud described. They're a lot less rigid. Something like the Oedipal, the Oedipus complex doesn't really happen to everyone in the way that Freud defined that there are these, and that would make sense if you have someone who's kind of on this cusp between philosophy and science, trying to come up with a good explanation to what's going on, but doesn't maybe have the tools that we would say, yeah, there's, there's kinks that need to be worked out. But there's something there to like stages of development. There's something there to these conflicts that we might have. And these conflicts can cause what Freud called fixations, but, but what we might find later on in life. I think Oedipus is one of the most misunderstood because it is solely about desire. It's, it's not really about literal mother and father. The way that I always describe it is, you know, desirer object of desire and obstacle. That's all that Oedipus is. And that really just describes the most basic dynamic of desiring. So, you know, when, when we talk about it as mother and father, it really is just as archetypes, not as, bio, not as biology. But something I wanted to, wanted to bring up in, in the, the kind of fallout of the de debunking of Freud is the barbarism of psychology without Freud, which is, I think, in particular, the denial of incest has one of the worst outcomes. When we deny how common it is, and it is extremely common, I think it's something like one in three women are abused, and the majority of that abuse is within the household. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think just one in six people in general incestuous abuse is so extraordinarily common that, you know, we must deny Freud. We have to repress these literally constant traumas that occur because I think it's almost Lovecraftian. If we were to collectively accept trauma and incest as a fairly common occurrence, it would, it would destroy nearly every, you know, familial and social structure because it's all based on paternalism and what happens when we kind of see the father for what they are well, that kind of comes out of so after freud's death a bunch of his like journals and stuff came out and we learned a lot of, of the stuff that kind of we always or usually choose to bash freud we learned a lot of it was 
far more either far more complex or um, misunderstood. So like I, I bring up to my class, you know, yeah, he used cocaine, but so did everyone at the time. And like a doctor who learns that smoking is bad when he found out like, oh, this is super addictive and bad for you, he stopped. But one of the things that they, they had found out is that like he, he really struggled with a lot of his views on especially his female patients who came from predominantly wealthy families. And there was a lot of stuff that they were reporting that if he were to just say like, this is what's going on, they're being abused by family members. They're being abused by someone that they know. Well, you've got a lot of rich donors who are going to basically kill the field of psychology. And so one of Freud's big motives was you know like trying to keep the field alive and trying to keep you know his his job going and part of that was tied to not being as open and as um i guess blatant about some of these these things that he was very dismissive about or he seemed to be very dismissive about in the open but he was very aware of um now we could say like he could have used his position to maybe help that but Thomas and I have already talked about the nature of him being a Jewish person in Eastern Europe, in Vienna, <laughs> um, and and how even with that position and that status, that there there you know blockages. And that's and that's still one of the the largest you know hideous critiques. It's you know what the the Nazis called it the Jewish science. That mm-hmm. you know that because of course it's just it's just there it's just their idea right like this couldn't be us even though Goebbels is utilizing psychoanalysis um it's really but i i do agree i think that is the 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 largest uh blemish on freud's career is that horrific seduction theory which he does thankfully by the end say you know no this is really happening this is not this is not just a delusion these these young women are really being abused. Um, Which again is something we see, I think with David Lynch, brilliantly exposed, brilliantly revealed the, the horror of the family. I wonder when we were talking about Freud, how internal Freud's analysis is versus how external Freud's analysis is. Because when we talk about things like incest abuse or repression or the death and sex drive, that those are also very uh, characteristic and institutional for the Victorian era. And we're kind of living in like post-Victorian where like we're still playing by the same rules. They're just unspoken and underground. And so I wonder how much of Freud speaks to our internal psyches or those rules that were explicitly in place that we have now just internalized and replicate. I, I think a lot of that can be understood with Reich. Um, so he is really the first to make a psychological analysis of fascism, which I think nobody would say is a product of the Victorian times. It's definitively modern, as is communism. And Reich establishes you know, what he describes as a libidinal economy. He, he grasps the, the drives at play in these political systems. Um, it's not as though 
libidinal analysis, which I really think is the bounty of Freud. It's, it's the drives. Utilizing drive to analyze politic, um, sexuality, romance, and just social, social uh, what, the, what are they, society in general, it, it, it's still useful. You know, the Victorian times had neuroses unique to that time, of course, which is a lot of what he was studying. But the unconscious itself, you know, can be understood. You can understand it through any era, and you can understand these unique traumas uh, across time. You know, there are some essential traumas, but certainly Victorian, Victorian Vienna has its own problems. So in terms of, you know, each time having its own trauma, can we talk about digital identities in the current era and our, I guess we've been referring to the internet as the collective unconscious because it's just, you know, Yoon is lurking around every corner right now. (laughs) Um, So talk to us about these digital identities and how they emerge through memes. So that's that's the, the big question, right? We've been talking about the libidinal, libidinal economy. And I mentioned earlier that Reich talks about trauma being libido um, stuck in the body. And that's bad. But now imagine it's not stuck in your body. It's stuck outside of your body. It is stuck in the virtual, in the digital. I think that is the unique, the truly, truly unique traumas that occur in this in this period um we are the first to invest our libido so deeply into illusion you know um i've I've seen that you've talked about the parasocial before um the parasocial the parasocial is a good look at a very light form of libidinal investment because that Mm -hmm. is generally it's a social investment sometimes it's a sexual investment But we look, especially in memes, you see just people who the majority of their libido is invested into the internet, into the online. Um, That that is the trauma unique to our time. And so these digital identities, which in the past identities would have had to correspond to behavior, to action, to a lifestyle. But one of the points that I make a lot and I think that this, this is part of why a lot of the like political analysis that occurs today is just patently ridiculous. It's because the people that they call Nazis, the people they call communists, the people that are anarchists, their actual lifestyle, their livelihood is identical. Mm-hmm. It's just being on the computer <laughs> and typing. Uh, it, it, it actually involves no praxis. There's no action. Um, And those that do take action are just an absolute rarity because it's so difficult for drive that has already been capitulated to the internet to reemerge. And that is, but that is why I think we get, you know, something that I always am fascinated by is that like in our time, murder rates have dropped massively among young people, but we'll occasionally get mass shooters because most people are online and occasionally a person will get enough drive built up enough trauma built up that it explodes, but it's only occasional. Generally 
the the traumas of today are online. Mm-hmm. That's something we were talking with. Um, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about vigilante gender violence with a sociology scholar who said that the um, particularly like the the line of incel mass shooters, which I think you were probably referring to. Um, is the very unique to America that typically in other countries you see gender vigilante violence happening within developing contexts, within cityscapes where gender gendered expectations of work are shifting and the uh, state is no longer monitoring or punishing gender role violations. Um, and so when you refer to this building up of libidinal energy to, you know, go out and cause action or, you know, in this case, violence and death within the physical realm, um, what keeps people within the digital? I think generally most, so I think that the, the incel mass shooter phenomena, I think that there's a lot less incels at least that would name themselves that that's a very particular type that would get into that space. I just don't think most people have that much violent energy um, in that regard. I think a lot mm. of people have a lot of like, what, what, what is the troll? A lot of people like to troll. That is their aggression. It's still humorous. It's still tricky and mischievous. It's not, it doesn't have the bitter hatred that figures like incels have. But the caveat is that the people who are not fully invested now, in the future, so many more young people are going to be fully invested because it's just how they're going to be brought up. There's just going to be so many more people who grew up online that there will be massive amounts of people who are bitter and full of hatred. Whereas today, I think enough people still have lifelines to reality. They, they are still based in the physical, but as more people end up solely online, um, when they do come out, it will be violent. Hmm. This, this makes me think, because I mean, on, on one hand, we, we did talk to, um, the, the conversation we had about that, did talk about how, it's predominantly these individuals who become almost locked into these online communities. They're, they're being fed by these communities and whether the person feeding them is a troll or is truly that kind of bitter and hateful. Um, they're, they're feeding into that narrative to help build up. So that person who has that capacity to do so is, is essentially being egged on in a sense and in a realm where they may have, have not have had that, you know, people not have had those interactions. But it, it makes me think a little bit when, when we're talking about things like digital identities, I, I, I kind of grapple a little bit as an identity researcher, someone who is interested in how people identify with these groups that they belong to, I do tend to see a lot of positive as well. And so we, we kind of look at how these communities that we belong to, especially in our, our adolescent years. So if I go to, to one of those neo Freudians like Erickson, who talks about identity development, but unlike how we tend to treat it, which again is kind of a modern, we need to label as quickly as possible as opposed to maybe letting develop. Uh, so, you know, Erickson puts identity development between about 13 to 25. We're still engaging in identity development, trying to figure out who we are, trying on new hats, 
trying, you know, metaphorically speaking, um, trying new things. And we're trying to kind of understand who we are. Um, and one of the things that I kind of talked to Thomas about before is, is this nature that, that the internet in some ways is increasing our ability to do that. So if you, if you can, if you're able to take the time, if you're able to try new things or join a group and then leave and maybe, oh, this group's not working out, or I'm going to go join this, this community, they're a little toxic. I'm going to go join this other community. We almost see that, that especially when combined with maybe a view that like by 18, you have to know what you want to do with the rest of your life. By, you know, 19, you have to declare a major in college. That there's almost this sense that like what the digital, like the, the negative to something like a digital identity is, is it's offering people kind of a quick solution to finding that one identity when it's a process. It's a process that has to be kind of developed and tried and multiple identities can be a positive thing, especially if you're in that early adolescent period. Whereas if you hit a point, you're like, nope, this is it. This is who I am. Um, I, I got a lot of those vibes when you were talking um, in, in your video about uh, the, what's it, the new Sigma male thing that like, yeah, if my entire identity is revolved around masculinity, and this is coming from a big bearded white guy, like I'm prototypically masculine, but that's not really where my identity lies, that I have other things that I can focus on. If someone says something slight, you know, slights masculinity or says something about me that they say, like, oh, you're not a real man. Okay, well, I've got these other identities that are more important to me than what you're saying. But, but for that person who says, all right, this is it. This is what I'm going to cling to. I mean, in the same way, I would say someone whose like entire identity is wrapped around their politics or their entire identity is a single fan community. Like there's, there's going to be some like maladaptive adjustment. There's going to be some issues there. That's because, you know, reality, as you said, it's a process. These identities that are true are, are processes. And that I think is the biggest lie of the internet. The internet makes one believe that they are free. They are free to explore and free to take in it all. But oftentimes it's, it's, uh, it's a prison and people trap themselves in little bits of the internet and they get trapped and it's, it, it, it ceases to be a process because it lacks the reality, the originality of life. Um, you know, especially with the introduction of algorithms, it, it became compounded even more horrifically, but also speaking to positive positive internet identity exploration. Like I can happily say I was one of the very first young people who was largely um, influenced by a Freudian online community of other young people. Like when I was 15, I started um, a Facebook page with my friend Elliot Rosenstock called Sigmund Freud's Dank Meme Stash. <laughs> And we formed like a really, really solid, a really amazing community. Then we all, you know, pushed one another. There's a lot of development. We had um, a magazine. It was the young, the young Freudians as opposed to the young Hegelians. And I think that without a doubt, it had an influence on many people. There was like, I think uh, over a hundred thousand uh, members to this page, to this group. Um, but so certainly, you know, education 
and positive developmental identities are possible and are out there. Um, I'm just far more interested in the, in the, the spooky ones, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's every modern psychologist. That's, that's everyone, you know, we're still all already more interested in the bad stuff that's happening because that's usually the stuff that people want explain and they usually don't want the explanation that we're going to give them they don't want that explanation that hey there's this stuff going on behind the scenes or there are these societal things i mean so like one of the things that we focus on in, in our kind of social identity research is is that the groups that you belong to form an identity those identities influence a lot of aspects of who you are and so if you're a part of that freudian you know freudian freud's dank meme stash and the people there are espousing very positive sentiments, you're, you know, creating a very non-toxic environment, the people there are going to feed off of that. It, it kind of becomes sort of a collective unconscious that everyone's kind of being influenced, whether they realize it or not. And that's, I mean, it's very young, youngy in that sense, because whether we realize it or not, we are influenced. If you label yourself a Democrat or a Republican, you're influenced by the people who lead those groups. And the same way if you identify yourself as a fan. I mean, I find um, that reading stuff, I've had to delve into for some research, some of the like very toxic, um, you know, MRA incel communities to, to kind of look for things that they were describing so that we could form questions for a survey based on them. And they're very different than a community like um, Reddit has uh, our men's lib. And they're very positive in terms of a group and talking about men's issues or talking about these issues that, that kind of come up. And, but they're two very different communities. They're led by different people. There are different conversations going on there. And what you would find is, is that someone in one over the other is going to be influenced. Again, whether they're aware of it or not, there's that unconscious um, aspect. The future is going to be in designer unconsciouses you will be able to select a helpful group, a developmental group. They will, they will provide all the content that you consume and it will you know, influence you in one direction. It'll make you progress towards something, toward a goal. And you know, when you start out, you'll think, what, what, what kind of um, an unconscious do I want? What kind of memes am I going to see? What kind of music am I going to be suggested? Um, that way we, we get rid of all the hard work of actually talking to new people and getting new suggestions, there will be designer, designer communities. <laughs> I mean, to I mean it's happening I, now. <laughs> I have to treat my algorithms like I'm Pavlov with the dogs right now. Like I may not hate somebody, but I'll still dislike a video in a heartbeat because I'm like, oop, I do not need to see that again. Or this video is going to suggest other things that I know I don't want to see. So I actually have to go in and do the work and give the treat or reprimand the algorithm. I just, I can't even bother with it. I really only go with people that I know at the moment. I, I don't consume anything that's not by people I know. That's probably smart. It's <laughs> mm -hmm. probably the smartest thing to do. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing too, to see how, I mean, we could even talk about this in a sense of how older generations. So like I look at my parents' generation, I'm, I'm on the cusp of, of being a millennial or a Gen Xer, depending on, I'm in, I'm in the older group of millennials, that 
we grew up with some sense of the internet. Like, like the internet was, was taking shape when I was going through like middle and high school. Uh, whereas let's say like my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, where you have these older people who are like delving into it. Like, like, again, it's, it's a lot of these same issues. It's a lot of this on one hand, they don't understand it, but on the other hand, they're treating it like they were treating something else. Like, they, you know, they're treating Infowars like they're treating Walter Cronkite. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's part of that, you know, their social upbringing led them to kind of put so much trust in those groups, kind of in the same thing. They're unconscious, they're collective, un, you know, they're unconscious for, for how they perceive stuff. I mean, if we're going to talk about this in a sense, like, the best way to describe it would be, you know, just what we're unaware of. And we could talk about that in psychology. It's just, you can't physically test it. And so everyone's going to beat you over the head if you try to bring it up. I'm so happy that you brought that up because, you know, I didn't, maybe I don't think I realized fully how, how sick I am of talking about young people all the time. I was, I grew up around older people. I'm, I'm very interested in older people. And I think it, it illustrates you, I don't know if you use Facebook, but Facebook is interesting. You get I don't. <laughs> it's interesting. It's worth looking at. Yes. Um, I escaped. Yeah. As you said with, I don't, you, I just look at people sometimes now, but as you, as you mentioned with, with um, Infowars, the boomer unconscious online, the boomer digital unconscious is drastically, drastically different from mm-hmm. the young person unconscious. Um, the zoomer, I, I think I, I, I described it once as the rhizomatic zoomer unconscious, the zoomer invests libido. The boomer, I think, is almost definitively fanatical. It's all death drive. Do you ever you ever see boomer arguments on Facebook? They argue constantly. They can make any post an argument. That is young people kind of do that, but they are trolling and and memeing. The boomer is like vicious. They 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 argue with a real viciousness because it's something that they can't do in in their day to day life. So. The young person who has video games, I think, they, they have more aggressive outlets. And so sexually, I think they're far more interested sexually. Of course, boomers are, are using porn and stuff, but they're far more invested in arguments than young people online. It, it makes sense to me. And this is like so fascinating. Just because, and I think it, I would argue it kind of makes sense. As someone in between, I'm very much in between both groups that growing up in a world where we didn't talk about sex. And so you've got a lot of Zoomers who are either not discussing it or sort of in this realm where like discussing it, at least in some online spaces is far more acceptable. And so you can maybe be a little more open, but they definitely weren't having those conversations with their parents. Cause I know I wasn't having those conversations with my parents, but the other side is that for the, the, the boomers it's, they're transitioning into a world where like those things that they could get away with 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people are like, maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. Like as a society, can we agree not to do this anymore? And, and everyone else is like, yeah, okay. But they're like, wait a second. Like, no, I want to be able to argue. I want to be able to tell this crash joke. I want to be able to do it. Well, you can, but we're not going to listen to you. And so it kind of makes sense to me that they're, they're going online and arguing or they're, I mean, it's, it's, it's always, it's fascinating too. That made me think of 
my wife likes to pretend that everyone on the internet is like 14 because it just helps understand like why people act that way. And I'm like, I really wish that was the case. <laughs> but there are like 40 year olds who are on Twitter spending so much time being just mean to other people. It's not the high schooler. <laughs> it's the 38, 39, 40 year old who just, I don't understand where they get the time from. I mean, I guess that's, that's where we're putting our energy. It's, it's they're putting their energy into that where, you know, they, they could be doing so much else. They could be doing so many better things. But yeah, I mean, I, I find that really fascinating. I mean, I, I definitely see that at least in Twitter to some extent, but I'm, I'm more watch. I don't, I don't really engage in Twitter much anymore. <laughs> I think what we see as well among young people in particular versus old older people is a general a general um stepping away from physical sexuality like there are still major but i would what what the online kiddos would call normies that still are just behaving normally having normal sex <laughs> but even then you know there's universal um porn porn use which i think was not nearly as present but the the boomer the boomer is still having sex without a doubt far more i think the younger generation far less sex oh absolutely and so again it it shows what what is their unconscious needing to express online um and that's why like one of the other major focuses of my website of memeanalysis.com is on conspiracy theories and which is a very primarily boomer, a boomer form more than young people. Like it's some young people, it's like especially extreme political young people, they will get conspiratorial, but universally older people are conspiratorial. I, I'll, online. I'll add, so I, I researched <laughs> this. I, I asked a bunch of and students because we were doing it at, at university. I asked them because I wanted to see like this conspiratorial belief like align with a couple of things that I was interested in. And I went and pulled a couple of like psych conspiracy theory questionnaires that have been used well enough in, in previous research. And when I got it back, I basically scrapped the entire thing because all of the questions from like a Zoomer or like a, a young millennial perspective are all basically stuff that happens. So it was things like the government is monitoring my actions. I'm like, well, of course they are because that's what's actually going on if you're on the internet. <laughs> And it was just sort of fascinating that, yeah, like if I were to ask people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, these questions, I think I would get more relationships and in, in relation, you know, these, these, these truer correlations to something like who really is, is like buying into these conspiracies because they're probably not going to say, oh, no, the government's not. You know, doing it. I mean, we know how the NSA has been tracking people. And so, but you have younger generations who... For them, I think a lot of these conspiracy theories right, are just fascinating. I, we, we study people who are interested in UFOs, cryptids, things like that. I think just people are interested in that stuff. They're fun stories. They're part of that collective unconsciousness. Um, but there's, for the older generations, there's a much bigger split when it comes to like belief in this stuff. For the young people, it is entertainment, largely, I agree. But for older people, it's religious. It's patently religious, um, especially in the midst of the death of God. 
you know, we need, that's why these, these extreme politics are necessary. Um, these extreme conspiracies are necessary for their satisfaction with life. Like without that, there is nothing like, you know, their God is truly, truly dead unconsciously. They can still believe, but they need more. They know that. There's not a holy war to run off to. Exactly. Other than online. Um, but the way that, and that is the way that I analyze it. I've essentially broken down conspiracies into um, major archetypes of gods, god archetypes and zodiacal attributions that, and so essentially it's the same exact fears that we had, you know, when we were in ancient times, the same gods that we believed in then we believe in now, they just emerge in this form. It's those archetypes. Can you give us an example? Give me a conspiracy. Uh, JFK. Okay. So why, okay. Give me who did it and why did they want to kill him? And I'll tell you. Um, the CIA killed him for capitalism. Okay. Mars. It's Mars. So Mars is, um, you know, a God of war and, and generally, that's how JFK theories will go, because generally it was about war or money and intelligence. So a lot of that is more so like, we had to do this, we had to make more money, we had to do more of this and that. And so that idea is essentially Mars, that god, he is the one who truly has domain over the earth. Like these horrible things happen, and it is under the direction of Mars. Like that's the evil star dictating what goes on. Um, but what I will say more about JFK is that JFK is Mars in Virgo because okay. it's the particular little problems with the, um, with the JFK autopsy, with the JFK um, bullet, the magic bullet theory. It's very particular things that normal people just will tune out. They don't care about angles of bullets. They don't care about physics. It's the very, very particular people, which is the realm of Virgo. So that conspiracy is uh, Mars and Virgo. Hmm. Okay. I'll bite, I'll bite your archetype analysis there. That's clever. <laughs> so we talked about the boomer being um, Thanatos-driven online and how the Zoomer is libid libidinally driven online at the time that young people are having the least amount of sex ever. That's something that I kind of go over in my human sexuality classes is that there are huge barriers to engaging in, you know, sexual behavior with other human beings right now, partially because most people have more than one job. People are still living at home. There's a technology gap in terms of class that's there. So you need to have a smartphone to get on Tinder to actually meet somebody people are having to move out of their hometowns. So why are people obsessed with nofap and porn addiction? If that is their only, would, one would think that that would be a cherished outlet. But we have movements online where there's a lot of control and abstinence going on as well. So what is, what is up with those two communities? So, 
I'll draw from two really drastically different sources. And one is just a quote. I'm sure you've heard of, uh, what's his name? Bronze Age pervert. He says, NoFap is a cargo cult. He says it for different reasons than what I'm going to say, but he is right. It is a cargo cult. And they think they have a little bit of magic that works. But here is the, the, the Reichian reading. So he, he, he saw those same problems present in Vienna. He, 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 was, he was Viennese as well. Um, but he also saw it in Norway, in Germany, in the Soviet Union. People, they were working too much. Industrialism and capitalism prevent sex. <laughs> it, it's almost the purpose of it, to be honest with you. Much of it is, is to actually prevent um, the proletariat from engaging in meaningful sexuality, because if they engaged in meaningful sexuality, um, a lot would fall apart. When the boomer says money can't buy happiness, what they're really talking about is libidinal satisfaction. They're really talking about work being dissatisfying compared to sex. They don't know it, but that is what they're talking about. So yes, we do. We live in a time where there are these extraordinary, extraordinary limitations. And one of the things I, I made a, a little tweet that is actually an integral part of the narrative that I'm building. So anybody who's listening, they know what I'm talking about. But the, the tweet says the internet is a, uh, the internet was invented by nerds to make everyone a nerd. <laughs> and so it was invented by people who don't have sex to prevent other people from having sex. And that's what religion is often as well. You know, mm. there, there are monks raised in monasteries who never see women. And it's a point of pride. It's like they, they consider it a beautiful thing. And the, the nofap cult, they believe, you know, that by, by not engaging in the dominant sexuality, which is onanism, it's not homosexuality, it's not heterosexuality, it is auto, it's autoeroticism. That's the, that's the dominant form. And that's something I often talk about. Like, how is one to be able to, how, how can one determine their sexuality if they are still a virgin? In truth, I'm, I mean, I am, I'm, a, I'm a classic Freudian. I believe everybody is bisexual in, in their nature, but it's, it's trauma and it's socialization, um, even, even into adulthood that informs the outcome of our sexuality. So the, the, the nofap, they are their own, they are their own sexuality, just as the, the person who just masturbates, it's their own sexuality. So they think that by not engaging in the dominant form, they will ascend, you know, they will gain power over this sphere because they do rightly assess the, the dominance of libido, the dominance of energy in this world. What they don't understand is that uh, the religions of the past gained power at the cost of humanity. You know, they, they gave up what was natural to man for supernatural powers, which exist psychically. Like, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not discrediting miracles by any means, and they are possible. Magic through um, abstinence is possible, but far better magic is possible through sex through masturbation even. Um, 
far more interested in effective allocation of libido as opposed to the denial entirely. So it's kind of like um, a primitive, um, automatically formed sex magic system. Hmm. Part of the, like you take the Catholic church um, as an example, part of their rationale for priests being celibate wasn't some sort of higher power. It was maintaining wealth within the church. So again, it's just like those systems in the Soviet Union that um, that were seen as a problem. But also, I mean, like, despite the fact that it can also help reduce your risk for testicular cancer, it's probably not the best idea. <laughs> this is what I'll say, though. And this is the really, really, really important thing that is necessary, you know, to begin to understand Wilhelm Reich which is to say, to begin to understand Freudo-Marxism, money is a signifier for libido. Mm-hmm. So yes, when, when you say that it's to keep money within the church, like yes, but it's, that means libido. It's to keep that priest's energy devoted entirely to the church. It's, it's not just about like, because a, a priest with a family, it's money, yeah, but it's also energy. If a priest is devoting more energy to their family than to the church, the church is losing power. Um, and I think that's why Judaism is far more genius as a religion and it's, it's far more rhizomatic. It can spread, but retain power because it, it allows for sexual freedom far more than I think more, you know, vicious forms of Christianity and Islam. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that, that makes sense. Cause like, this is something we should have probably brought up at the very beginning <laughs> is that and and i think this is maybe where we see the disconnect with some of like like the the ideology with like the nofap group especially if they're taking a, a very freudian approach is that with freud sex is pleasure it's not just physical sexual activity it's anything pleasurable like i, I think you you bring that up in in, in your video on nofap mm-hmm. is that you know these people are then going out and basically like locking themselves in the room and playing video games if they're getting pleasure from that, that is sex, according to Freud. That is the true definition of what he means. And we tend to, because of those kind of misconceptions and the fact that we're not talking about Freud as much, we tend to just view Freud as the sex guy and sex is in the sex, sex stuff, the actual sexual stuff, as opposed to just pleasure. And I think there's a lot of disconnect there because like, like, like as you bring it up you know, with that, if I'm putting my energy to my family, and the same thing would work for, let's say, you know, a CEO wanting someone to work 70 hours a week. If you're putting energy in your family, that's less energy you're putting into their business. Mm-hmm. That's less money that they're going to make, that's less power they're going to make. That's less of their ability to then use that wealth for their own pleasure or to, to gain their own status. It's like we say money can't buy you happiness, but there, there are psych studies that find that it actually does up until about $70,000 where it plateaus. So if you can make about 70K a year, you can generally meet your needs to a point where then you can kind of put your pleasure into whatever you want. <laughs> and that really is the key, you know, it's, and that's, I think the real, the problem with so much class analysis is that it fails to grasp that it fails to grasp, like, why do we actually want money? Why do we need money? And why, why are some people so f- fixated on hoarding money? Um, Alistair Crowley has a really great um, chapter on money in his book, Magic Without Tears. And 
he describes it as, you know, the fourth of the great powers of the world, because um, I know Tom, I know you use tarot cards, you know, Mm -hmm. coins, discs, pentacles are one of the four suits and that's money. And, but it's, it's a much more magical understanding of money, which is what we're talking about. Coins are earthen material energy, materialized energy. Um, and that, that's the, the brilliance of Freud of Marxism is, is a legitimate understanding of class and of economics. And it's kind of what's been revealed lately with the success of cryptocurrency. You know, people and economists for, for probably fucking, excuse me, probably centuries, um, centuries, they thought, oh, the, this is, it's, money is based on this. Money is based on that. It's not. It's just energy. It's it's a meme. It's a meme. Yeah, money's it, a meme, and it functions mimetically, which is why Doge is able to do so well. Bitcoin, mm-hmm. Ethereum, yep. and so on. They they don't. And and when when the the major crypto people, the crypto nerds, are like, oh, it's because of this and that technology. It's like you know, shut up and let it work. It works without your your nonsense. We don't need all of that. We need a powerful meme. That's why the success of Dogecoin, I think, is is a far more beautiful thing than Bitcoin. Yeah, it's it's all memes all the way down, and it's the way to make money too. Like, you know, I I was able to with my friend, my business partner. Um, we have a, a little thing called Beamimetic, and we were able to sell NFTs utilizing memes because we saw it for what it was, which is nonsense. But we can make money because of that instead of mm-hmm. trying to approach it reasonably or by the rules. When you approach it energetically, you get to the heart of the issue. It's kind of like the people now, I mean, kind of keeping within the sort of stock talk of, around this is the people um, on, you know, like Wall Street bets buying AMC and like they're buying what we would essentially call like meme companies right now. GameStop itself is a meme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might as well be. AMC in the time of a pandemic is basically, a, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a symbol. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's that information transmission. It represents something and it kind of takes on a life of its own through, you know, these people banding together and buying stocks. And then just like with something like Dogecoin or Bitcoin or something like that, that, that they're, they're all of those people, like, your entire life has said like, money is based on, you know, this, or it was once on a gold standard. And like, now there's that realization that no, it, it's it like everything else is a social construct. It is what we make it. It is what we have kind of come together and decided it is. And they're screwing over these hedge funds because they've kind of embraced that nonsense aspect. They don't have to understand. You don't have to understand how stocks work. You just have to know, like, I got to go and buy a couple of AMC stocks and I got to hold on to it. I got, I got to just, I got to stay strong. And they're using memes to keep that going. My favorite definition of the stock market is it's just a graph of rich people's feelings. Well, it maps to the moon phases. So you're quite right. Um, you know, just like we know that. Does it map to the moon to phases? It totally. Bitcoin does. GameStop did. Um <laughs> Stocks in general, they 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 map to the moon phase. You know, when when people when we talk about like periods mapping to the moon phase, 
that's not even that's not even the big thing. What the big thing is fucking money. Money maps to the moon phases. I know a a lot of astrological investors, and they do great. They they just they look at the movement of the stars and the planets, and they make they make lots of money because the planets and the stars, the gods, are the original memes, right? The zodiac. That's why the tarot is so powerful. Mm -hmm. It's it's a it's a deck of memes. Yep, and it allows you to to grasp them far more fully. And that's the beauty of, of communities like Wall Street Bets, where they are, they're very positive. It's, they are effectively wielding mimetics. And I think the future is going to be full of movements like that. And, and they're going up against people who are much older than them, who don't understand it in the same way. They're not engaging with it in the same way. Um, and it's, that's how they're going to, you know, screw those those older people over that's how they're going to essentially in the long run win in in terms of this battle between the hedge funds and and these redditors we have the vibe (laughs) (laughs) so i had one last question on our list for you and it reverts us all the way back to libido again but you did have a new video come out um, would you explain your new video to us and the tier system that you have developed for digital sexualities? Sure. So this is, you know, initially it's built on Freud and then on my own research, my own ideas. So we have the essential Freudian fetishism, which is fetishism built on uh, castration anxiety. So when the young boy first sees a vagina, they realize that I could lose my penis, that they lost their penis. I could lose mine as well. And this is a a, a deeply traumatic realization. And so that energy, that, that libido that had been devoted to the phallus of the woman has to move somewhere. It has to be invested somewhere else on the body. So oftentimes it would just go to the first thing the child sees. It might be underwear, pubic hair, legs, feet, um, boots, and so on. These are all like just, oh, it's got to be that. It, it's a way of re, rearranging libidinal images to the psyche. So that is the source of really normal basic fetishes, foot fetishes, tummies, armpits, and so on. Then you get Oedipal fetishism. Oedipal fetishism is built on family dynamics, trauma. Now, this is, I would say, when people think about fetish, when they think about like kink, they're talking about Oedipal fetishes. All of the leather, the bondage, um, sadism and masochism, these are all established within Oedipus. They're all built on um, trauma, on family dynamics. And so those two, these are really the base. These are the norm. And this is really as far as most fetish studies go, um, because they're, they're what you can actually study. They're real. Um, then we get into, I think, as I was talking about earlier, the truly unique, truly modern forms of libidinal investment. So we get the media induced fetish. So there are a lot of people who gained fetishes through watching movies, watching television. These are fetishes that simply could not have existed in the past. 
Um, one of the really common ones, it's quicksand. Quicksand isn't even real. Quicksand is like a fucking movie idea, but it, a lot of people are really obsessed with it. Mummification, hypnosis, various costumes from different movies. These are all media induced fetishes. You often see this nowadays with um, cartoon characters being the focus of a fetish, of a fetishistic desire. And then finally, we get the fourth, which is related to all of them, because it's a, a fetish that could only be formed through the use of pornography. It is, so you, you take somebody who has those, one of those three pre-existing fetishes, and through their exploration of pornography, they become addicted to it and need a new outlet. And so it has to be something more and that more is completely physically impossible and exists solely in pornography so those are essentially the four allocations of libido into the body into social dynamics into media and into pornography i have two questions before i think thomas like will take over (laughs) (laughs) um like when you say modern because i i think um i i think i guess my two proudest non-article um, works is, is I, I got to write a great chapter about Rule 34 within the My Little Pony fandom community. Um, and I got to write about hentai uh, for a book on anime psychology. And I learned a lot more than I wanted to, but probably had the most fun writing anything I've ever written. But like when we get into sort of this, this idea of like modern there are examples of works or like derivative works. I mean, you, you, we, there's also a lot we probably don't have proof of. So you could say like maybe someone took Homer's Odyssey and kind of came up with their own fantasy based on that. Um, in the grand statistics of how the human mind works, I would argue that there was some Greek guy out there who had his partner dress up like Helen of Troy. But I guess I guess it's it's more of in in a way in which we engage with it on the internet, uh, in in terms of like a modern view. What I would argue is that that would still function as role play and would still function as Oedipal to an extent, if we assume okay. like religion is Oedipal, or that our relationship with nature is Oedipal, which I would. So it, it's that it's that difference between that person who's just kind of like forming an attraction to let's say a character or developing something that's a little uh, what we might consider atypical um, based on a character versus saying like, well, you know, I'm kind of into like the whole mummification thing, but I can actually pay someone to do that for me. And it's also, it's like the parasocial investment, right? Like you can invest very fully into a television show. You're going to have a lot harder time investing into Helen of Troy um, I mean, obviously, the the orators are animated, but the dynamics present therein are still illustrated by archetypes, especially familial ones, social ones. Like Oedipus doesn't just need to be mommy and daddy. It can be, you know, this god, that god, this guy, that guy, this king, and so on, which is why, like, all of the role play of the past, like a lot of, uh, you know, Maids and kings, queens, slaves, masters, all of that is edible. 
Whereas the media induced actually is like creating new categories, new forms. Um, they're still built on Oedipus, I would say, but it's a digital, it's a digital Oedipus. But I do agree. I, it, it's a very, it is, a, it's a hard line, especially when you get into things like, like an old Japanese woodblock prints with, you know, girls yep. and octopi. Like, is this, yep. is this, you know, bizarre? I think like Reich has a really interesting thought, which is essentially just all of the internalized libido. He calls it the mystic unconscious um, as a evolution, but really a degradation of animism. And that is what produced demons, chimeras, when we combine different traits. So when we combine octopus with penis, that is a Oedipal connection because it's fantasy. It's within fantastic dynamics. So that would be, that's, that's what I would say. <laughs> and then where would you put, because I mean, you, you primarily talk about this in relation to like, I guess, pornography addiction. Um, or, or someone who is, I guess, a pornography obsession, or maybe to use the word fixation. Um, where would someone who maybe takes that parasocial relationship, so someone who's watching, let's say, like a Pokemon stream, and is giving thousands of dollars to someone on Twitch or to someone on OnlyFans, and you know, again, that relationship is also not in any of those, it, it still exists within that fourth category. So would that be that kind of fourth category? I would say, and that's a, that's a great question. Like Pokemon would be media induced, but if you have a dominatrix, it would be Oedipus. So like if you are paying a dominatrix directly, that's just edible. But when it makes the leap into, this is somebody I've never met, will never ever meet or will ever talk to this is somebody that doesn't know I exist and can't know I exist. That is media induced. Hmm. But like we said earlier, if money is libido and we are transferring money and if money is a meme and you're sending essentially a, libid a libidinal meme to your Twitch bay, then would that not constitute a line of communication? Even if you only exist as like a, itemized line within their profit margin? I think that figures like Pokemane or Bell Delphine have established really, really strong personas so that they are actually never contacted, never touched. Mm. Like they do not actually interact. Um, oftentimes they even have managers who do that aspect of the work. Um, so no, like, whereas a normal dominatrix who you who you could like just kind of dm and and get into that relationship with they are that's still them they might have a, a dominatrix name but that's still them talking they're still doing right. the business but figures like pokemon and bell delphine are like legitimately ascended kind of me their means they they have given up their humanity to be popular online um which is why they're able to be human in real life and that's what you have to do. The people who are people online will, will go mad. They will lose everything because their, <laughs> their libido will be devoured. If, if every time somebody gave money to like my channel, if I reacted humanly to it, I would be ripped apart, right? There, there's a necessary persona function 
to mm-hmm. to block that because the money is magic and it can be used to destroy people and it does oftentimes. Hmm. Okay, I, I understand. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to touch on with you is the I'm very conflicted with pornography addiction. Um, I follow your argument about pornography, particularly within the digital realm. Um, one of the things I've been following is Mind Geek, which is the company that owns all of the porn sites. Essentially, it's a monopoly. And the same algorithms that make our life hell on Reddit and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube um, operate within that sexual space and curate your digital fetishes um, for profit. And so they are designed to continue to keep you watching um, to the detriment of everything else because the viewer is the product in that situation. But then I move over to say like the clinical psych research on pornography addiction, where I find two competing sides with this issue. There's the, I'm going to call them the pseudo-religious pornography addiction researchers who may not actually be religious, but they're operating very similarly to like the nofap cult. Um, Very foundational philosophically, like pornography is evil and it's making you addicted Um, And even the religious people follow that as well. And they have their 12 step programs and they treat it like an alcohol addiction. And then you have the other side of the research that shows that really it's the only people who are upset about pornography addiction are the ones who are feeling some incongruency with their morality. So like they feel like they shouldn't be watching, but they are watching. Um, And we haven't really been able to find a link between a frequency of pornography and feeling like you're addicted to pornography. So like the person who watches one video a week can be way more distressed than the person who's watching like 20 videos a day. So I have a weird relationship with the phrase pornography addiction for that reason. Um, Can you kind of use your Lacanian uh, psychotherapy and fix that for me, please? (laughs) It's It's an excellent question because I think, you know, that those ideas are so fucking stupid and harmful to actual, you know, understanding actual psychology. I approach it not morally because let us be clear. There are morally reprehensible things that are really, really good for you. I would almost say many, many, many things. That's the essence of Aleister Crowley, right? Like you do bad, you do bad things because it helps you. It helps develop you magically it helps develop magical ability so what i care about is what is energetically harmful what is going to prevent me from functioning as best i can because libido is the magician's magic they need to have reservoirs of libido at the ready to do their will whenever they need to so if you invest too much libido, I feel the same way about, about fucking uh, video games, movies, anything, any, any form of non-developmental energetic masturbation is negative because it prevents more action. Action is good. You know, perpetual, what, what is, uh, w- William Blake says, energy is delight. And that is, Energy is defined as evil by religions. It's, it's rationality and inaction that are considered good and godly. 
And so, you know, to many porn, video games, and entertainment, even work oftentimes are um, good because it prevents you from doing what your body needs to, which is to have sex and to move freely. That to me is when something becomes detrimental. If I am doing it more than I am doing, Mm -hmm. it is bad. There's nothing moral about it. It's just what is going to energetically uh, aid my action. So you're having a completely different conversation than the main line about pornography and pornography addiction then. And that's why I make it really clear in my video on it. Like when, when you get a lot of people saying, oh, this is degeneracy. Pornography is degenerate. It's nonsense. And they, they operate on a moral framework because, like I've said, God is dead and they, they require the feeling of power that is given to them by moral superiority. They have no energy. They, they are unable to grasp an energetic critique of a behavior, which is why they continue to do really horrible things and retain the same lifestyle as the degenerate <laughs> because they're not operating energetically. I mean, this kind of gets to, like, if we want to have a better, I think we, we talked about this because we have talked about, like, the the pornography addiction before is is that you know from a psychological sense it, it comes down to what is distressful for the individual and what is maladaptive and you could have three different people each one consumes very different amounts and they all find it distressful or they all don't find it distressful and or they're able to still go and do the things that they want to do or they're not and so that difference between the person who might watch a video here and then go do their work, go do some reading, go spend time with their family, go do whatever they want to do versus that person who has to give that other stuff up that they, they would want to do in order to basically sit and watch porn all day is that kind of distinction. And I mean, I think you, you'd find some psychologists who would definitely agree with that in terms of kind of like a maladaptive addictive state. Um, but there's definitely that whole other side of sex research that <laughs> I did find a very interesting study in preparation for this uh, podcast. It's from, uh, I believe, Both uh, from 2020. It's high frequency pornography use may not always be problematic. And they compared two samples of people who both had high frequency pornography use. And they found that the ones who were distressed about it um, demonstrated. Let's see. Oh, that's the wrong table. Where's the right table? Here it is. The ones who were distressed about it had lower self-esteem. They had higher depressive symptoms. They were more susceptible to boredom. They had low relatedness satisfaction. So being able to relate to other people. Um, And then they had high frustration with relating to other people, uh, frustrations with competence in their relationships. And then uh, let's see. Yeah, no. So Two samples, same pornography usage amounts, just one of them was very distressed by it and they had a lot of other negative psychological consequences with it as well. So I don't know if it's necessarily the amount that you watch that's the problem. Well, I think there are people who live what uh, a religious person would call a perfectly morally justified, uh, a morally virtuous life, but they are just as, as, just as, you know, horribly off as the pornography addict because they both produce nothing. I really am disinterested in 
I suppose, and this might be where, where we, we split. Like, I don't really care how people feel, if they feel good or feel bad about what they do. I'm really interested in what they do, in what they produce, in what they uh, move, how they move. I'm only interested in a productive unconscious, in, in a productive energetic form. Mm-hmm. I'm disinterested in the person who is satisfied with their life, really. Um, so the person who's happy masturbating, the person who's happy not masturbating, disinterested. If the person who masturbates is able to, to make great art more than the person who doesn't, then keep, keep jerking off, keep using porn. It's good for you, but it's not good for everybody. Mm-hmm. So whatever allows people to move more, because like, I think porn can be like drugs. I think like it can be something that it, it excites you. It gets you uh, moving. It gets you ready. That can be fine. But if it's something that prevents you from moving, it's bad for you. So I, I certainly don't think it's universal. I'm just, and because I have a, a video game, a set of video game analyses as well. You know, people devote libido to video games. And I think that's just as bad. I think those are just two really, really common popular um, libidinal traps. Right. And that's really why I focus on them. I think like, you know, I don't know, twiddling your thumbs uh, and reading the wrong kinds of books can have the same effect. <laughs> okay. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's very much like if, if we go back to like someone like Erickson, like Erickson's final end goal is coming to terms with your life and part of that is generativity and part of that is built from all of these other things and other stages before it and so where he just kind of picks up where Freud leaves off at about 13 he tries to take it to the end and say all of this stuff is building to you feeling like you've accomplished something and if you're you know if in your 40s or 50s and you haven't accomplished something well you're probably gonna feel that stagnation stage and then you're going to go on Facebook and yell and scream and fight in hopes that you feel something <laughs> from winning an argument or winning this debate, you know, or something like that. Where, whereas someone who is like, like, yo, I've got a family that I'm working on, or I'm working towards this aspect, or I'm producing what I find is, is, is really fulfilling work. There's that generativity there. And, what I do to get me there is, is kind of what you're getting at. What you do to get there, it's, it's about getting there. It's about getting there so that when you get to the, you know, when you get to that last stage for Erickson, it's um, ego integrity versus despair. It's either your ego is maintained, you are at peace with your life because, hey, we're great. You did the stuff that you wanted to do um, and you were able to do it or you at least feel that you were able to do it as opposed to that person who's like, I could have done so much more, but I spent... <laughs> 10 years jerking off to internet pornography <laughs> yes and the path you know what we walk to that that satisfaction that individuation at the end of life how we get how we build that bridge it, it's constructed differently by everybody and that's what's beautiful i just find there are a few primary things online that prevent people from building that bridge mm-hmm and they're, they're almost monetized mm-hmm. I mean, in that way that they're, they're there to keep people involved in that loop and not moving forward because moving forward means that you delete your Facebook account or that you go, wait a second, like I can start my own business or I don't need this publisher to publish my work. I can do it myself or I can do my own 
thing um, and, and put that information out there for other people to utilize. Um, but as Thomas and I have talked about, we're in a system where sometimes you need them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Keep your job in academia. <laughs> because they're not listed in this podcast for tenure evaluations. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just, the, the more that we talked, I, I remember Tom, Thomas was talking a little bit. I, I've, been, I've been harping to myself on that, you know, it feels that there's someone who, I haven't read as much Freud and Jung. Um, I really have, have been, my, my path in psychology has been very different. I'm only now delving into it a lot more than I used to. But I feel like it, it's almost as if, in some cases, we're kind of speaking two different languages, but we're coming to the same conclusion <laughs> that we can agree on a lot. Um, and I've been kind of fixated on the, um, the, the Next Generation Darmok episode, uh, where... They, I mean, the whole point is speaking in memes, speaking in metaphor. And that's, that's just sort of like how, how I kind of think about, like when I talk about Freud for a lot of people, and the more I, I, I delve into it for a lot of people, it is like a different language because the way we've been told Freud is like, or at least the way that we've approached it or not approached it in a lot of ways has almost left this kind of to, I mean, it's the same psychology or it's the same underlying psychology, but they're almost kind of like two different eras. Like it's like we're speaking old English versus speaking, you know, modern slang. And, and that there's this, if we're able to kind of, you know, bridge that gap to kind of take us back to the beginning to say, look, there's some stuff that would be really interesting. Or maybe, maybe if we're just a little more open into saying like, let's, let's maybe approach this a different way or let's maybe delve into this stuff that's not as easy or that's not as clear cut or is not as objective. We could benefit a lot from that. And that, I, I mean, I, I would argue that despite the fact that we've gone way longer than we expected to, I, I, I mean, I can say I've benefited a lot from this discussion. It's been very interesting and it's, it's, been, it's been really good to kind of get into um, you know, some of these, these topics from a very different perspective than I think any other psychologist that mm -hmm. we've talked today. No, absolutely. Would, would get into. Had a very good time talking with you both. Thank you for having me on. I'm happy we could have this discussion. I've been aided a lot as well. So I guess I'll end with what we end with. We have a list of about 130 something biases over the, the entire history of psychology. And I try to pick one that kind of relates to what we talk about. I mean, there's enough of them. Uh, I've already used the most memey one, which was the Ikea effect. So the one I picked today, I think does kind of fit because it's older. It's probably the oldest bias that was on this list. It's anthropomorphism. Mm. Uh, so Xenophanes goes back to 6th century BC, and it's the tendency to characterize animals, objects, and abstract concepts as possessing human-like traits, emotions, and intentions, which I think is in part quasi-memey. <laughs> we do attribute things to plenty of characters and I mean Doge is a great example of that there's a lot of anthropomorphism in in that um, but also how you know a lot of the stuff that we've talked about how people have kind of given these traits or that we put these traits that may exist within our collective unconscious onto the other things in our lives even if it's just the internet as this abstract concept we give it this human-like quality <laughs> What a, what a beautiful one. I am, I am brought to 
um, a brilliant issue in Neil Gaiman's Sandman, where we we see cats and Morpheus dream appears to them as a cat and he'll appear to different aliens as an alien. I, and I always liked what Xenophanes said himself because he says, you know, the horse's gods look like horses. It's as simple as that. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us. I've really enjoyed it. Definitely a fantastic conversation. I can't wait to listen back to this. <laughs> I'll actually look forward to listening to my voice editing because I'll get to... so yeah so I guess with that um, we'll say goodbye <laughs> <laughs>